Hi, I'm Delana and I'm an alcoholic. And I want the screen. I'm trying to make myself. Okay, never mind. I look at myself however I see it. Okay. So um, I'm really grateful to be here tonight. I'm always grateful to um, speak and share my experience, strength, and hope in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, um, I did not know when I grew up that I would be um, an alcoholic. I did not know that that was gonna be my situation. I, like Renika, um, am the product of teen pregnancy. You know, uh, my father told my mom, if you get on top, it'll fall down and you won't get pregnant. And he didn't know what he was talking about and she didn't know he didn't know what he was talking about. And here I am. And, uh, you know, um, it was just a whirlwind of a story. You know, I grew up an only child and an only grandchild for both sides of the family. So I was basically a freak of nature. I didn't know what other children did. I didn't even know there were other children. I was the center of the universe. I saw them on television, um, but I did not know, you know, what children were. Um, I watched soap operas with one grandmother. Um, I drank coffee with another. You know, and I knew that at some point I was going to smoke cigarettes. I was just determining whether it was going to be Winston or Cool, uh, Cool Filter Kings. I like the way it sounded at the liquor store. I'll give me a pack of those Cool Filter Kings, you know. Um, and so I was a child already planning my adulthood and what I thought it was supposed to look like. And uh, being an only child um, and hanging out with old people, I'm saying old, they were old to me, you know, um, hanging out with these 40 year olds and these 50 year olds, um, it, it sort of turned me into this, uh, you know, I felt like an alien. I literally thought I was an alien and I will come to find out that that was very true. I was an alien um, and, but I really felt alone. I felt alone in my thinking. I thought no one thought what I thought. I thought no one felt what I felt. I thought no one uh, imagined what I imagined. And Michael Jackson was my boyfriend. Um, I'm about 51 years old. So I'm exactly 51 years old. So that means that I grew up in the 70s. Okay. And it means that I just have a perspective that's associated with that time in human history in Los Angeles, California. You know, and, um, and another aspect of that is um, I lived with my grandparents a lot. You know, I was back and forth between grandparents just because my parents were so young and they relied on their parents for support. Um, but all of my grandparents um, had migrated from the segregated South from one state or another, you know, four different states. So I grew up in a, in a, in a in just an era when uh, people were trying to build a life that was better than the life they had known. And so what happens when you do that is you give your children more than you had. And so what they created was these very dependent adults, my parents, you know, and, and it also painted an entitlement picture for me. I, I felt entitled to like, they're, you know, like who's gonna die and leave me something. Like I completely, 
I mean, like currently I'm still battling, (laughs) you know, like where's my shit? You know, like I was entitled at Christmas. I was entitled on my birthday. I expected large things. They used to get savings bonds and give them to me. You know, like I expected people to go above and beyond in my life, but that is just the, the, the system in which I grew up in. And even though I didn't know what was happening to me, that was being, um, shaped in a particular way. Um, trust me, I was shaped in a particular way. And I wouldn't know that until I got like a little older, you know, when you get old enough and you don't get the same stuff you used to get at Christmas, like the whole room used to be my Christmas. And then when I got to like 15, I was like, where my shit at? You know, like, um, it was very interesting, you know, um, to, to see the shift in entitlement and entitlement can make you very sick. And we call it self-centeredness and we, we call it selfishness. We call it me being at the center of the universe and everything being peripheral, peripheral. But I am calling it at this time an entitlement. I felt that people owed me happiness. They owed me comfort. They owed me pleasure. They owed me just a, um, enthusiasm and entertainment. I, I just, that was other people's responsibility. And that hasn't ceased either. I am still overcoming this particular character defect, or should I say, just flaw in perspective, okay? Um, And so here I am, um, this kid, um, I don't know how many of of you are only children, but only children are very um, deceptive creatures. um, they they know where all your stuff is, everything. They know what a gun is. They know where your money is. They know they know where everything in the house is located. They know how everything functions because that's all they have to do is you know uh, figure it out. They're very very good at problem solving, and this will work later for me in my crack addiction because I would know where everything was uh, to my benefit. Um, or to my demise, however you want to look at it. Um, So I wouldn't start drinking you guys until I am like a junior in high school, but that didn't mean that I didn't use. I, I always used, I always needed something outside of myself to dull my senses. I always needed something. We, my mother bought me or somebody bought me this toy called sit and spin, sit and spin when I was in elementary school. And sit and spin, I don't think it was regulated. I think they might've regulated some later models um, in the nineties maybe, but that eighties model, baby, spun you around real fast. I mean, if you weren't careful, you'd fly off of this thing, right? But I would sit and spin, 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 and then just feel the high of the spin. I, this was my favorite toy. I don't know how I got, I would have that toy right now if I could sit and spin, sit and spin. I like to feel dizzy, you know. I like to sniff fingernail polish remover. I like to sniff rubbing alcohol. When we pulled into the gas station, I like, I would leap over. This is a child, a, a child, like a a little kid that you give a lollipop, I would leap over the back of the station wagon to the far where the, 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 you know, the, the bed is so I can smell the fumes of the ethyl gas stronger. 
I would eat candy until I vomited. When I broke my jaw at 11, thrill seeking. I, my teeth were wired shut, but I have an overbite. Well, I've kind of gotten some little Invisalign since then, but I had a huge over, overbite. And I would steal my grandmother's candy because she had a hamburger stand. I would steal the candy and smush it and stick it in through the overbite so that I could get candy. I could have died and choked to death. I had scissors around my neck, but nothing stopped me from pleasure seeking. You know, the big book says some of us seem to have been born that way, you know, not able to differentiate the truth from the false. I just think I was born with the dopamine issue. I think I was born with a chemical imbalance in my brain. I think I was, I was absolutely born to folk who had it. So I, I think I was born or somewhere along the way, my pleasure seeking caused me to always pleasure seek. See, my problems don't begin with cognac. My problems don't begin with Brass monkey, that funky monkey that afternoon at high school when the boy let me sip out his backpack. My problems didn't begin that day. Yeah, that's when I got a, got a good one. But my problems came like way before then. And it's really important to talk about this new person because once alcohol is removed, once drugs of choice get removed, I'm still left with that brain I'm still left with those perceptions. Renika talked about it. I'm still left with these false ideas about me, myself, life, the way I function in it, was fair, being good enough. And being a clinician, I, I just got this, this connection to human development and where the inferiority complex comes in from age five to 12. When I, when, when I start believing that I wasn't good enough, I didn't know I wasn't good enough until I got to elementary school. I hadn't met any of those mean fucking kids. And I go to preschool, I had a grandmother. I watched Luke and Laura talking about Erica, you know, on all my children, like that's what I did and drank Sanka decaf. She was a decaf lady. And we talked about Jesus. When I got to elementary school, some little kid starts cracking up. Woo! <laughs> I want to know what's so damn funny. What's funny? What's funny? And he says, ha, ha, ha. Look at your legs. Your legs are so skinny. They're so skinny that there's room around the ruffle sock. Ha, 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 ha. And I want to know, what the fuck is he talking about? I didn't know anything was wrong with my legs. Uh-oh. But here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So now a stranger, a freaking seven-year-old is running my life. Just like that, I don't love myself. Just like that, I'm angry at this God my grandmother keeps talking about. Like he fucked that up. 
there's no way in the world he should have gave me these legs. I mean, not these legs, not legs that will cause a person to stop in their tracks and laugh out loud. And I assigned all failure to God. And God was not who my grandmother said he was every day, all day, the only damn thing she talked about after watching the stories, that that God makes mistakes because he absolutely made a mistake on my perfect self. I'm perfect. I was also like really smart and like knew my multiplication table in, in, in kindergarten. And, you know, the teachers like take a nap in kindergarten. I'm like, it's 12 o'clock. It's time for all my children. What are we doing right now? Like take a nap. I don't nap, I watch the stories, you know, like it was difficult. Elementary school was difficult for me. The adjustment of children and small mind games, you know, um, I shot pool and listened to blues music and watch people drink whiskey at night. Like that's how I live my life at five years old. Oh, they owned a nightclub. So, you know, I'm in a situation, you guys. I'm in a situation. And I'm in a perception situation because in this period of time that I talk about an inferiority complex being built, I intersect with life in a particular way. I intersect in the relationship that I have with my mother's mother. And if whether there's competency in that relationship will determine whether I feel inferior or competent in my life. I have intersectionality with kids before school. And depending on how, if I feel competent in those relationships, I will dot I will plot a dot on that line of in my development of feeling competent or not. I, you know, the ability to raise my hand in the classroom uh, when the teacher writes the math problem on the board will determine how I feel about myself. The ability at lunch, if I get picked on the kickball team, will determine whether I have, I feel a sense of competency, inferiority slash superiority, whether it begins to raise this ugly head. You know, how I function after school, I was cool into the sixth grade when I got bullied and I had to run really fast home and felt shame because I didn't know how to fight, I had never had conflict with other kids. So. The competency, the competency or the inferiority or slash superiority, which is the same thing, is beginning to take root in me for various reasons, whether I have enough uh, money after school, whether I can control. So I, I learned very early, you have to control the sack, whether it's the candy sack or the cocaine sack, you need to control the sack, you, whether you control the drink, you need to be able to control the environment in order for people to do what it is you wanted them to do. So I would always buy a lot of candy so I can control people because I did not imagine that people would like me on my own merits. I didn't have any evidence that I was good enough and I was beginning to build a whole platform or a whole belief system that I wasn't good enough because I didn't have competency in a relationship with my mother because my mother was emotionally unstable. She was raised by an emotionally unavailable woman. I didn't have competency with my father because my father, I was in and out of his life because they were young, they couldn't stay together. Eventually he left when I was seven years old. I didn't have a lot of competency in certain areas of my life where I could believe that I was good enough or lovable enough or that I mattered. And here's another thing is that I, I've come to believe that um, because we are trying to work out our situation on a spiritual matter, on a spiritual basis, it's like, 
The first step says, I admit that I am powerless over alcohol and that my life is unmanageable. My life is unmanageable, cannot be ignored, okay? This is really a situation for me. Yes, when I drink alcohol and I take it into my body whatsoever, I can't control the amount I'm going to take. Something happens in me that does not happen in the average moderate drinker. It happens in me and it's been happening like from the beginning of time. I don't, I mean, of course I would get to different bottoms, but I'm saying that I am a person that will never be able to safely use alcohol in any form at all again. That's my diagnosis. My experience shows me that. I am also a person just last night had the thought to drink or more like get some cocaine. But I had the thought just last night and my sobriety date is 10-21-1996. I've been sober for 24 years. I still have the mind of the alcoholic. Sometimes my mind is going to think drink. If, I've, if you've ever robbed a bank, you'll always case the joint. You know, the mind is already predisposed to a particular mindset. For my grandmother, Brillo, the little metal brittle that sits on the soap dish in her kitchen is for scrubbing the skillet. For me, it'll always be Brillo for crack addiction. It'll never be the thing that you scrub the pot with again even though it's sitting in there for the intention of that. So if I've ever robbed a bank, I'm gonna always case the joint. So I have to understand that my mind has been imprinted with a solution of alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine. So I'm clear on that. My diagnosis is in. If you are struggling with this aspect of the disorder, it is important that you diagnose yourself in the first step with a sponsor where you compare what the other people's experiences are to your own, where you look at the body, say, mm, do I do, can I stop when I wanna stop? And you look at the mind and say, when I'm separated from drugs and alcohol, does my mind take me back whether I wanna go or not? Like this, this must be done in the first step. This is the foundation of this program. A full knowledge of my condition helped me move to the next phase of my development which Renika was talking about her relationship with God, but I don't get no relationship with God. I fake the fuck with a relationship with God if I don't believe, step one, that I'm gonna die and I can't save me, that I'm beyond human aid, that no matter how hard I try, on my own, I can't save me from my thinking. But the other part of step one, our lives are unmanageable is what I'm talking about right now. As a child, I didn't get my emotional needs met. My mother couldn't do it. And so I'll tell a quick story that will illustrate what I mean. My mother and father would get into these fights occasionally. My mom would go out on a Friday or Saturday night and not make it home to the next day. Cause you know, she smoke a little sherm, pass out and can't get home, right? So when she walks through the door, my dad is pissed. He's fixed me a bowl of spirit, cereal. You know, we've had some tuna fish. My mother walks in with pride. And so she's like, what? Well, you know, I'm good. And he's like, you can't do this. We're married. And she's like, quit tripping. And he's mad. And she's disrespectful. So they get into a fight. The last time they fought was in 1977. I was seven years old. The fight rolls out to the front yard of our brand new five bedroom house. We just 
the fuck moved in. And this is the last straw. I felt in my little seven-year-old body that they weren't going to be able to tolerate another one of these. And I was right. They couldn't. Now they break up and nobody, my dad leaves and never comes back. Not one of those adults, not one of them, not my mother, not my father, not their parents, not six adults, six adults. No one sat down with me and said, Delena, what are you doing, baby girl? I know that must've been tough. How's it with your dad not home? How are you getting along with your mom? Are you sad? Not one person checked in. This doesn't mean that they didn't love me. They did love me. And I'm giving an extreme example of the day my daddy left, right? But you have to understand no one checked in with me on Thursday. Saturday. You know, happy days made me feel better. Laverna Shirley made me feel better. Nobody, nobody knew my fears. Nobody knew my ambition. Nobody knew my loneliness. Nobody knew how I felt abandoned. Nobody knew that I was terrorized. I knew I, I had learned very early on that these people were unsafe and I could not share myself with them. I, I drew from this conclusion that I didn't matter, that my voice didn't matter when we went on vacation. Nobody fucking asked me where I wanted to go. Nobody asked me what I wanted for dinner. And I absolutely, because I have concrete thinking at this time in my life, I don't have abstract thinking yet until I'm 13 years old. I believe I don't matter. I believe keep quiet. I, I, I develop survival skills. I be, it begins to manifest itself as masturbation, pleasure seeking, attention seeking, achievement. It begins to, mat I got to meet my own damn needs. I got to survive in some kind of way. So I began to put veneers on me that would help me survive how I think, how I feel, and the loneliness of being this stranger in this family system. So I, I haven't even gotten to alcohol yet, but I always liked it. You know, because they were from the South, they would put together hot toddies with corn whiskey. <clears throat> if I had a big enough cough and I always liked that little peppermint to go down smooth. And I always liked that my grandfather would fall asleep on New Year's Eve and me and my grandmother would toast the new year with real champagne. I always liked that too. I always liked alcohol. But it wasn't until that day in 1987 when I had become a cheerleader. And um, I didn't mean to become a varsity cheerleader. I was not very good at it. I had just really, you know, kind of bullied my way in a situation that I shouldn't have gotten myself into. I'm telling you, I was not the cheerleading kind of girl. I ran track. I was a tomboy. I was faking femininity. It was just something that one of the veneers I had put on trying to survive my life fucked around and made the varsity cheerleading squad. And I don't mean anything to you, but in South LA, you got to do a whole bunch of shit if you're on the cheerleading squad. <laughs> and I was not built to do. And uh, honey, my mom used to say, don't write a check that your ass can't cash. But that's in fact what I had done. 
and we had Friday Night Live. We had night games and it was everybody and their mama was there and I had low self-esteem and I did not feel competent in this area. I felt fine coming out the blocks on the track, but we were on the track doing something different and I had on the skirt and guess what? Those legs were underneath that fucking skirt and they're fine when they're running, but standing there shaking my little bitty booty, which I hated, and I had this body dysmorphia about, was a situation. And that, I asked that boy one day, I said, boy, what's in that backpack? And he said, brass monkey, you want to taste that? I said, mm-hmm. And brass monkey, God bless that funky monkey. Uh, I would get a good sip, and then next Friday, I would get my own. And uh, we start buying, piecing up on $10 bags of weed, and I needed that in order to be able to walk out on that football field and perform with those other dancing girls I, that I wasn't. I don't know what I look like. I have no idea. Good thank God there were no cell phones back then uh, where people could uh, post now uh, to blackmail me. Surely it must have been hilarious. Um, but I survived it. But I don't, this is, I'm turning to the solution now. I'm beginning to turn to the solution for my mood disorder. I'm beginning to turn to the solution about my depression, right? I'm beginning to turn to the solution about my anxiety. I'm beginning to turn to the solution to help me cope with the veneers that I've created to survive feeling not good enough when I was a kid, when I was in elementary school. So now everything is starting to crumble now. My development is, is starting to, you know, because my development is built on sand, right? So these houses that I've built are beginning to wash away. And eventually, eventually, you know, my really good, good, good girlfriend put some cocaine in my joint on my 18th birthday because she's good. That's what your good girlfriend does. You know, she laces your marijuana joint for your birthday with cocaine. That was so kind of her. And I will forever be grateful for her for giving it to me that way. And me not, surely I'd have got my hands on it another way. And I vowed to uh, smoke this kind of honey-laced cocaine, I mean, weed for the rest of my life. She did not tell me it was cocaine. She said it was honey-laced. And it was so sweet and amazing. And um, I was absolutely grateful. And I always would call her and say, hey, let's go get some of that honey-laced weed. And before you know it, I had a cold-blooded cocaine habit. And I didn't go to college. My grandmother didn't allow me to go on a track scholarship to LSU. So I would stay home and get hooked on crack. What about that? What about that? All that promise, all that beauty, all of that, I mean, ingenuity. I'm talking about like, I'm like Renika, I'm like at the top of the class. I'm running my ass off. I want to be in Olympics. I, I just got all these goals and dreams. And, so, and, and, and remember the kid who leaped over the backseat of the station wagon? Well, guess what? She's always had a chemical imbalance. And guess what? She has already started drinking alcoholically. She always drinks till she throw up. And now somebody's put cocaine in her system. Yeah. My body, my body is different than my fellows. Something happens in my brain that doesn't happen in other people's brain. My brain uh, craves dopamine like never before. And I can't stop. Even when I want to stop, I can't stop. And it takes me down roads and avenues that I never thought I would go down. And I was raised living in the tower, safe and protected from all the riffraff and the bullshit. And do you know that I would live a homeless life, that I would live 
with the serial killer and he would eventually you know have his hands around my throat and I would survive that and, and I would prostitute myself and I would be in the world that I only imagined in 1970 uh, <laughs> freaking movies you know like like, what is this shit I'm in? What's this world I'm in? And I'm, I'm in walking distance from my, my uh, Baldwin Hills home and I can't get back. I can't get back. And so from age 22 to 26, I was in and out of drug rehabs. I did five rehabs in four years. I even gave birth to a baby because I thought the baby was going to keep me sober. He didn't. I wasn't his, I haven't been his mother since he was 19 months old. Some other people raised him. He's 26 now, you know, um, you know, and my life was unmanageable, hasn't stopped. You know, that's the part that doesn't stop. That's the part that we treat. That's the part that we uh, do six about. That's the part that we look at what's driving me. What are my guiding principles in my life? Am I still full of pride? Am I, do I have negative um, concepts of myself, my negative self-talk? And then I project it onto you. I think you think the things that I think negatively about myself. And then I start behaving in a particular way because I think you can see my frailty. I mean, or am I living from a place of humility? You know, uh, am I in my codependency where I try to control environments so that people will love me because I don't believe that I'm lovable? You know, one of the most powerful things that happened to me when I was, um, I hadn't gotten sober yet. It was my last run, you know, because my run, my last run started with a glass of white wine. Those of you that are new, white wine is alcohol and it will set off the phenomenon of craving and it will drag your ass down the street to the places that you hate ending up. But that's my story. You know, I started, I, I relapsed on a glass of white wine. I could not see that I was going to end up back on the streets. Um, but I, I, I had convinced myself because that's the mind I have. It convinces me, you know. Um, and, and, and in this last run, it came to me, I was seeking the truth. I, I saw that I had the phenomenon of craving. I saw that I had the physical allergy in the first treatment center. I turned 22 in that treatment center. And I, and I saw that my, something was wrong with my mind that I could think a thought. And before I knew it, I was doing it. I, I mean, something was wrong with me. That was, it was just very interesting to me that it didn't take much. Nothing could really stop me from this risk-taking mind, you know? But I didn't understand that I had a spiritual malady and I understand what it meant. Um, how many minutes do I have? 10, 9, 8. So um, I didn't really understand, even though I was going to meetings, even though I had been in several rehabs, even though people were talking about the, the 12 steps from the podium, not many people were talking about God. Not many people were, everybody was kind of careful about it, you know, because nobody really wanted to impress upon another person their idea of God. It was like some kind of respect, but it left me fucked up because I had my grandmother's idea of God, which was punishing, and I had to be performative with this God, and I was never able to pull off this performance performance-based idea. And I had written off heaven. Fuck heaven. There's no way in hell I'm getting to heaven. You know, so I really didn't have any joy about life because I couldn't see that there was a benefit in the by and by. There would be no eternal life for me. You know, that's for damn sure. You know, uh, I aborted babies. You know, I did all kind of, I mean, just name it. I, it's on my resume, you know. Um, 
And I didn't mean to be fucked up, but I was, you know, and um, well, I had fucked up behavior, you know, um, and um, so I get to this program and I'm going to be honest with you. I sat down with my sponsor. I was serious about it. This is the fifth program. I almost died so many times. I knew that if I didn't, because I had never completely given myself to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Never. I always kind of half did it. Got a job, got a career, you know, just got married. I always did something else, you know, my own thing, my own version of recovery. But this time I was going to completely give myself to the simple program, just as the other people who remained sober while I went in and out did. And I get this first step experience and I feel the foundation and I'm excited. I'm on fire. I see it. I can clearly see that I must work with others, that I must treat the unmanageability, the emotional part of this disease where I don't manage my emotions well. The same reason that I um, chase dope with my body is the same reason why I'm unmanageable because I'm under the influence of the hormones that are released in my body when I experience certain emotions like disappointment and, um, you know, and um, needing to control or fear of looking bad, fear of feeling bad, fear of not being in control and fear of being rejected. Those right there can make me, you know, do all kind of shit to you, you know, cut your tires, anything, you know, it, it'll make me set you up at work. It'll make me do anything. That just those fears alone. I will gossip about you. I will fuck your husband. I'll do anything when I'm under the influence of those fears. Okay, cool. So, um, so here I am, you know, with this sponsor and I'm believing 100% I got it. I'm believing 100% in uh, the program is outlined. I get the honesty piece where we're changing statements into questions. I'm diagnosing myself and we get to fucking step two and they get to talking about, you need God. I am pissed off about this. Did I mention my grandmother? Well, shit, I know God and Jesus ass. As a matter of fact, my grandmother is Jesus' little sister. I know this already and I'm pissed because it hasn't worked yet. So how in the hell is God about to work now? And I don't know about you guys and your experiences with religion, with religion, but what was told to me failed me utterly. And the big book talks about those of us that we, we, we give up on our God ideas and we don't believe it's plausible anymore. Agnostic to the tilt, I was pissed. So what happened to me one night was this. I'm glad I have about 13 minutes to tell the story. So I'm coming up on my last treatment center. So I, I don't know it's gonna be my last, but it feels like it's gotta be. And I'm at this old man's house and um, I'm in trouble. So this guy's looking for me. You know, he had, he had shot this girl and I was pretty sure he was planning to shoot me. Like it's a serious situation. and. Um, and he would sometimes smoke that sherm and, um, you know, anything could happen. You know, I already knew it was a dangerous situation for me. So I had to lay low. But because I have the phenomenon of craving, I can't go home because it's still on me. So I got to hit a trick and hide. Hit a trick 
and hide. That's what I, that's how I'm living now. Like even my little drug addict world is getting small, you know? So I go to this old man's house. Wasn't nobody there but me and the old man and he didn't have no money. So he can do the number going in his room. So I'm sitting in my, in the living room and this is a straight guy shot here. I got a, a, a Hawaiian punch, which is my favorite drink, a honey bun, which is my favorite meal, a pack of cigarettes, about $40 worth of cocaine. And I look over and there's a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and a Bible on this man's bookshelf. So now I'm about to solve the mystery of uh, the spiritual malady. <laughs> I'm about to figure it out. <laughs> That's what's about to happen right now. And I set out to do exactly that. And I'm reading the Bible. You know, the whole damn creation story, hitting the pipe, drinking the Kawaii punch, you know, like, whoo, just, I mean, this story, I could just see all the imagery, right? And so, you know, like Adam and Eve, you know, Cain and Abel, and then Cain kills Abel, right? So this is the end of my Bible reading. Cain kills Abel, and the very next thing that happens is uh, Cain goes to the city of not and marry some chick, right? So I'm appalled because I want to know where the fuck does she come from, right? Like who's her mama and why they ain't in the story, you know? And so there's aspects of this story that's missing. I'm mad. And this is important. This is important because we say this in meetings that God would and could if he would sought, right? So basically I was going down the rabbit hole. So I get out of the rabbit hole because I'm pissed off, like, because I want to know where she come from and there's no answers. So I get the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I draw a circle and a triangle and I start setting up the circle and the triangle, the body, the mind, the spirit. Because I learned that from a first monster, you know, three years ago, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm armed with facts about myself. What are we talking about right now? And so I'm filling out the, the title page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I got it all together. And I'm thinking, what is spirit? Like I go to God and I say, look, God, if you're who my grandmother says you are, your ass better show up tonight because I'm in trouble. I'm cornered. I got this cold addiction that's going to kill me. And I got a couple of dudes. I got one out there trying to put me under pimp arrest. I got another one out there who's going to kill me. And I, so I'm like, you better show up like tonight. And just like that, in a puff of smoke, I get the answer. It comes to me. <laughs> I get an image of a person in a casket. Now, you know, if you got a Southern grandmother, you go to everybody's funeral, sister so-and-so, you know, whoever dies, you go to their funeral because it's a social event. I went to a lot of funerals when I was a kid. So I saw a lot of dead bodies in caskets. And so um, I would notice their fingers and things like that. And I would be able to like, oh yeah, that was her. Cause I remember her hands, you know, before she died. And so the question that I asked myself after having this imagery was what is dead? What is dead? But the question that saved my life, cause I was like, I'm sprung, I'm high, but I'm not dead. I'm still moving around. I'm still having my being. The question that came to me next was what is a lie? And that set me free. And so what I'm trying to say right now is this. And when, when I get to we agnostics, even after having this experience, I'm able to trust this portion of the book because I had had this spiritual experience even while I was getting loaded. And see the power of God, the power of the universe doesn't matter if I have a crack pipe in my hand or not. Because 
God would and could if he were sought. Nothing blocks the power of God. It is unlimited, right? It cannot be encumbered. So it doesn't matter what I was doing. When the answer came to me and I realized that this body that I have, the one that you can see on the Zoom screen, right? This thing is going to Inglewood when it expires, because that's where my family and other most Black folks I know put their bodies, dead bodies in Inglewood and Inglewood Cemetery, you know? So this thing is going to Inglewood, but this thing is not what I am. There is a thing, the fundamental idea of God, which lives inside of me, which is me, which is my life energy, which is how I move and have my beingness, which is what you will remember, which is what will connect to you, which is what this frequency is, which is what this thing is that we are doing right now. This unification that we have with each other is our spirit, not our bodies. Like we are connected right now. Right. There's a power right, that exists in me that I don't give to myself, but that I must express. And so I realized that in that moment. So when I get to, no matter how frail or small your God idea is, it is enough to make contact. It is enough to get results. That the realm of the spirit is broad, is all inclusive. It never excludes anyone. Like I needed those sentences that are in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I needed a new basis by which I could believe because my old basis shamed me. I never believed I was good enough for that God's love because I couldn't produce the performance I was required for the religion. But this is so important for us to touch because many people come to Alcoholics Anonymous, fake the funk about a relationship with God because they hear other people talking about it and don't establish their own relationship with creation, with creator being, you know, just assigning to themselves, I am a part of God's, ever, the spearhead of God's ever advancing creation, that that is me that I am its agent, that there is agency in me, that God is my director, my principal, and that I am its agent. Nobody knows it, but I am a secret agent for God. And I walk around life loving people, right? Engaging people, right? Helping people wake up from their sleepiness, their lethargic state. Like that's what this program has given us. It has given us this secret agency, right? Where, where my life, me chasing a feeling, chasing a feeling, chasing a feeling, pleasure seeking, pleasure seeking, about to kill this body, trying to feel better. It, it gets turned into my asset where I can now take that experience and connect to other people who live there the same way, who felt like aliens as well, who were also trapped in their body seeking, body seeking, body seeking, dopamine, dopamine drip life, right? And so it's so beautiful. That's, this is my favorite part of the program, that just like that, just like that, a life that meant nothing begins to mean everything. And I saw right there that I was in a boot camp, that I was in a boot camp for, 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 for lepers, that I would, I am a leper and my scales would fall off and that I would help other lepers also. Because I always thought lepers in the Bible were the most fucked up people. They had sores and shit on them and they would be sitting on the side of the road and people would not fuck with them or throw bread at them, whatever the case was. And so I always felt like that is what the addict is in this in this uh, society, the leper. You Nobody wants to fuck with them because they're heartbreaking and they fucking steal your money, then die and can't pay you back. You know what I mean? Like, 
<laughs> what is this? No time. Bye. Thanks. So. This experience. Um, I'm old now and I fucking stayed sober long enough to have menopause. That's the funniest shit ever. Um, <laughs> I used to be fresh and sexy. Now people call me ma'am. Um, <laughs> so I get a chance if I don't pick up. I get a chance if I treat my mind, I take my mind to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with a sponsor, and I deeply believe in prayer. I love the lay aside prayer, the set aside prayer, wherever you call it. I love it. It is a tool to teach. It taught me how to develop a prayer life. My sponsor said, say it 20 times a day. I was so desperate I did. But what I realized is that it caused me to turn to that power that I was developing a relationship with, that I didn't have a relationship with yet, but that I was developing a relationship with, you know? My sponsor didn't want me to call him every day. He was like, you better not fucking call me every day. I talk to you two or three times a week, that's it, you know? And he says, cause he wanted me to not be relying on him, but on my relationship with the power because he knew that I was gonna need that in the middle of the night. He knew I was gonna need to build that muscle um, and, and not call him in the middle of the night. Because if I'm beyond human aid, I bet not need his ass. You know, I better need the relationship that I've been building through um, investing in the relationship. You know, I'm gonna say this and close. Belief is one thing, but reliance on the power or access to the power is something else. Belief is one thing, and the big book talks about it. Belief and access to the power. Belief and access to power, belief and reliance on power. It's two things you need, okay? I could believe there's money in the fucking ATM. It don't give me access to it. Belief ain't enough. I need a relationship with the financial institution. I need to have engaged the financial institution. I need to have placed deposits into our relationship. I need to have a secret code. I need to have a card. I need to have association and agency. There needs to be evidence of our relationship before I can gain access to what I believe is in the ATM machine. So I need to believe in God, but I need to also have relationship with God. And what that looks like is having a relationship with myself. What it looks like is beginning to see that God created me and that I belong to the power that I am, I am one in the number of the spearhead of God's ever advancing creation. Like the big book talks about it. If I don't have a relationship with creation, then who do I think I am? If I don't have a relationship that the creator sent me to the planet, no wonder I'm so fucking afraid and I'm writing fear inventory and I'm taking fucking uh, gabapentin. If I don't have a relationship with the creator, 
I can't see that we are one, then I'm going to struggle in this program and I'm going to be unmanageable. And God, I'm going to need to control you in a relationship. And God, I need to make more money and I'm going to need to eat more food and I'm going to need to fuck some more. And I'm going to need more and more and more and more and more outside of myself if I don't have a relationship with the creator. Now, when I first started, I said, my dad told my mom, if you get on top, you won't get pregnant. See, the two of them went into that drive-in that night. The two of them went into the drive-in. But the three of us left. In the summer of 1969, I was created. I came into time and space. I came into creation. They didn't know my ass was there. I didn't know my ass was there, but I was. I wouldn't show my face until the spring of 1970. But you best believe conception is creation. And I know that's how I got here because I didn't have some babies my damn self. And I didn't create them. I had sex. Everything else was involuntary. <laughs> Everything else was involuntary. And those of you that have given birth to children, you know what the hell I'm talking about. You did not know. <laughs> you did not know. You were like, really? <laughs> what are we doing right now? And the baby took over. You know, um, if you have not get completely given yourself to this simple program, you fucking cheating yourself. You're drinking cheap liquor. It's a waste of your time. Get you something that's going to get it done. Get into this program. Get a sponsor. Do the 12 steps like your life depends upon it because it does. Step one talks about the fatality of this disorder. It talks about the grave nature of alcoholism. If nothing else, do your best. Do your best to be honest. Do your best to be honest with yourself about, the, about this disease and how it's done more to you than it's done for you. Do your best to connect to a power much greater than yourself. Stay open to spiritual matters. You never know what, what sentence is gonna save your life. Do your best to look at how, how your problems begin and in with you, do your best to help other people find their way. Do your best to get into agency for this program because the bottom line is that we get to brotherly love. This program is to teach us how to be available to love, God's love, the love that we have for ourselves and the love we can give to others. I hope that I said something that made a difference in your life. I know it made a difference in mine tonight. <laughs> I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for letting me share.